0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Ivan Maisel has covered college football for nearly four decades at ESPN, Sports Illustrated, the Dallas Morning News, Newsday, and currently at On3.com. He has been honored eight times for Best Story by the Football Writers Association of America and twice by the Associated Press Sports Editors, which in 2019 named him one of the 10 best sports columnists. When I think of Ivan Mazel, I think of the word insight. He has an incredible ability to provide accurate and deep intuitive understanding, and in this episode... Ivan shares lessons learned from the most tragic event of his life. I hope you enjoy learning from Ivan Mazel, because I certainly did. Ivan, thanks so much for coming on today. I'm grateful we can chat for a couple reasons. Uh, First, one of my favorite family traditions is to blast College Game Day throughout the house on fall Saturdays, and it's that time of year where where we get to do that. And your segment on College Game Day with Tyler Helinski's family is the most memorable College Game Day segment I've ever watched. Now that said, the reason you did that segment is because you and the Holinskys are, uh, in your words, part of a club that no one wants to join. So with that intro, Ivan, maybe I'll let you describe what we're talking about today and a few of the lessons you've learned these last several years.
1: Sure, Nate, and and thanks for having me. So the the piece on game day ran uh, early in the season in 2018, and Uh, Earlier that year, Tyler Helinski, who had been the heir apparent and had started the bowl game for Washington State and was the heir apparent for that coming season uh, at quarterback, ended his life shortly after the 2017 season in January of 2018. Now, that was almost three years after our son Max had ended his life. Uh, He had been a junior at RIT in Rochester, New York. So ESPN kind of looked at me and was like, you, we need you to come help tell this story. And what I said to them was, if you're, we all know why you're asking me, but the story I can best tell is Mark and Kim Holinski, Tyler's parents. You know, that's where, you know, because if I'm not telling that story, I'm just sort of telling what happened to Tyler. And I'm, that's not where I'm an expert. Where I'm an expert is what it's like to be a parent who loses a child to mental illness. And ESPN, in their wisdom, agreed. And And thank goodness that Mark and Kim were open to it. So we had a really... Uh, I spent a day in their home and just an emotional, uh, bared, soul-bearing conversations with both of them individually and together. And basically what I conveyed to them and what I tried to tell in that story and and what I have taken away from losing Max is uh, a couple of things. One, you can't stay as much as you would like to. You can't stay where your child is. Your life goes on, your life continues. And what you have to do is pick up that grief and take it with you and pick up what you can of your child and take it with you. Because if you try to stay back where, where your child is or you decide you don't want to re-engage in your life you lose again. You've already suffered the worst possible loss you can lose. Mm -hmm. But if you're not going to be open to new things that come your way, then you lose again. And, you know, I just, it, it just felt to, I just had this feeling that just because this really, really bad thing happened to me and my family didn't mean that good things would stop happening. And You know we had to decide would we be open would we allow ourselves to be open to those good things and i yeah look a lot of it is fake it till you make it you know i but uh two weeks after we recovered max's body max basically drowned himself we assume in lake ontario in the midst of winter in a really bad winter And it took eight weeks for the water to warm up enough for his body to come to the surface. Two weeks after we recovered his body, our nephew got married and it was like, you know, did we want to go to the wedding? No, no of course not. You know, but again, you know, why would you not at least leave yourself open to that joy? And so we went, and and I kind of encouraged my wife and our daughters to go just to be open to it or just to be a witness to it, that, just to see that good things would still happen to us. And it was really hard, but it I felt like we needed to do that. And it was sort of a launching off, sort of a launch of you know, we got to keep going. And that, you know, now it's been seven and a half years, Nate, and, and I'm a lot more accustomed to this burden of grief that you still carry with you. And you, you know, the, the weight feels natural now, but it never goes away, you know, And, and, uh, that was sort of the lesson I tried to convey to Mark and Kim, and it's really a, a lesson that has stood me well, and I think my family well, in this last seven and a half years.
0: Well, I think you you quoted a poem um, that had a line that said, it's, it's like carrying a boulder up a hill that never ends.
1: Yes, uh, a, there's a guy on Wall Street named Edward Hirsch, who's also an accomplished poet. And he wrote a very small volume called Gabriel, which was uh, about his son who died. And it's 78 pages of three line stanzas. It's a really interesting, unique format. But he just talks about his son and his son's death and his response to it. And that image of carrying grief being a a boulder that you carry up a hill. He called it poor Sisyphus grief, which really stuck with me. And what it kind of said to me was, okay, you can't stiff arm this. It's not gonna go away. You've got to pick it up and keep going. Excuse me. So that image really helped me to understand you know, if I try to fight this, you know, it's just going to be wasted energy. And at that time, I didn't have any energy. You know, you know you're so drained and, and emotionally devastated. And it just, you know, it, it sort of made me realize that, you know, you can't, you, if you try to fight this, you know, I, what we, what we told our girls and what we told one another, we being my wife and I, is that you have to grieve because if you don't control how it comes out of your system, it will control how it comes out of your system. And it may not come out at a time that's convenient for you. So do the work, you know, and and do whatever you need to do. If it's go to a grief counselor, go to a grief counselor. If it's go howl at the moon, go howl at the moon, but you have to, you can't push it down because it will only just spring forward because you you, you have to get it out. And that, uh, you know, the, the energy it would take to push it down, I think, would be enormous. So, you know, all of that sort of played into just get used to it and and deal with it.
0: You know, one of the things you said that struck me as well, you know, is if you live long enough, you're going to have to deal with grief now. Certainly, not everybody is going to join this club that you joined. Um, no. But one thing that hit me that you said is, it's important to let people grieve in their own way as well. And if you don't, if, if you expect, you know, your family, your spouse to grieve the way you grieve, then that can only lead to more problems.
1: Yes, and and what uh, what we learned and and just uh, what grief experts have said is, you know, that there is a number out there that 50% of parents who lose a child end up losing their marriage as well, end up getting, splitting up. And so we looked into that a little bit, uh, <laughs> uh out of self-defense and, and what, the convention, what the current wisdom is, is that it's not the loss of the child that causes the rift. It's judging one another's grief. Uh, You, you never cry. Well, you always cry. Well, you never go to the cemetery. Well, you, you know, you always go, whatever it is, you know, you always go to the cemetery. And my wife and I had the nature of our relationship was we really did a very, have always done a very good job of not judging one another. We came from very disparate backgrounds. Uh, she's Catholic from upstate New York. I'm Jewish from Mobile, Alabama. So we had a lot of work to do to figure out how to yeah, how to build a life together. So we were pretty well versed in not judging one another. And, and I can understand why that helped. And I can understand why spouses would tend to look at the other one and go, you know, Mm -hmm. why are he or she doing this or that? You know, so um, you really, uh, you know, you have to let people, you you know, you can encourage them, you can encourage them to grieve, but it's really hard to tell them how to grieve.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that really jumped out at me is you talk about grief. And how it just never goes away. And it's this burden you carry. Uh, but you then said something profound in the book. You say that grief is the price we pay for love. And I just wonder if you could expand on that.
1: Well, actually, what I said is, you know, that saying is out there. Grief is the price we pay for love. I don't ascribe to that. I think that's one step too many. I think grief is love. and And if you think of grief as love not as a price you pay for love, to me, grief is the form that love takes after you lose whoever it is you lost. Because why does it hurt so much? Because you love them. You so love much. them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, once I, you know, and I just was, uh, as a sports writer, I'm used to thinking in similes and metaphors and figures of speech. And I, you know, and I was just, I was sitting at this desk and just kind of staring out this window and thinking, you know, why do I feel you know, what is it about feeling this way? And that equation sort of came into my head. Well, you loved him that much. Yeah. And once I thought of grief as love, it made grief less intimidating, less fearful and and i could more easily accept the fact that yeah okay this is just you know i feel this way cuz i love max so much and and then the, it didn't feel like quite the burden that it that it could be and that helped that idea helped immensely
0: yeah i think that's so fascinating equating the two when i'm feeling the grief that's because i feel love that's be- because i love my child so much and uh, my wife and I heard you speak. She was at the Campbell summit where you spoke a, a month back. And one of the, the things that you said that really jumped out at us was that you like it when people talk about max, cause you're thinking about max and you especially love when somebody can share a new story about him because that's a way for you to create new memories.
1: Sure. I mean, we, you know, we have a finite pool uh, of memories, Of Max, because you know he's not here to create new ones, and you know people are hesitant to talk to somebody who has lost someone. It doesn't have to just be a child. People don't know what to say; they're scared, Mm -hmm. and they would sort of hem and haw. And that was me before I lost Max. You know, people would hem and haw, and they'd come up to me and said, "Well, you know, I didn't want to bring him up," you know, and I would smile as best I could, just so they wouldn't think I was a, you know, I was being a complete smart ass, which I was, but I would say, well, you know, you hadn't have brought him up. I wouldn't have been thinking about him, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, you know, to your point about people telling us stories, if you can bring me a memory you have of Max that I don't know, what a gift. You know, uh, because I don't get any new ones unless you come give me one. Mm -hmm. And his fourth grade teacher came to a party we had when the book was published and told us, told me a wonderful story about Max being in the colonial play in fourth grade. Because in New England, in fourth grade, you have a colonial play. It's New England Mm -hmm. and quiet, shy, introverted Max played Patrick Henry and pounded the table, you know, and shouted, give me liberty or give me death. And the whole class was like, whoa, Max!" (laughs) You know, and she said, even I was going, whoa, Max, you know, so it was just a really sweet and wonderful story. And I have lived on it for a few months now.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I mean, I want to be sensitive to your time. And as we wrap up here, is there Anything else that you'd like to share? Any, anything else you've learned that's helped you or that you think could help other people who are dealing with similar situations?
1: Well, Nate, again, thanks uh, for giving me uh, the opportunity to speak. I, I, you know, I, I think what we all need to remember is with mental health and mental illness, to think of the second word, to think of it as a health issue or think of it as an illness, not to focus on mental, which is what we do as a society. And the quicker we can look at it as a disease, the quicker we can forget the stigma and begin to devote the resources we need to devote to it to fix it. You know, we've done great strides with cancer, uh, and there wasn't that long ago that Cancer had that sort of social stigma. He didn't speak about it publicly. And if we can do with mental illness, what we've done with cancer, we'll all be so much better off.
0: Well, message is well received here. And and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know Max through the book. So your book titled, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. Yeah, there it is. is. I just thumbed through my book again, Ivan, and I've literally got highlights on, multiple highlights on almost every page because it's just so full of insight, emotion, and power. Uh, so I just, again, wanted to thank you so much for uh, writing the book and being open to talk about you know the most difficult uh, topic imaginable for a parent.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Nate. And uh, I hope our paths cross again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I'm grateful to Ivan for sharing such difficult, profound lessons. First, when we lose someone, we can't stay where they are. Our life must go on. What we have to do is pick up the grief and what we can of our loved ones and take it with us. And it may feel like pushing a boulder up a hill forever, but if we don't keep moving forward, we lose again. Second, we have to grieve. If we don't control how grief comes out of our system, it will control us. All the while, though, we need to not judge others for how they grieve. Third, grief is love. Grief is the form love takes after we lose someone, and when we're feeling terrible for losing loved ones, it's because we love them so much. Fourth, when we lose a loved one, we have a finite pool of memories of them. What a gift it is when someone can provide us a new memory of them. And finally, there's no shame in being sick. When it comes to mental health and mental illness, we need to focus on the second word. It's a health issue or illness, and the quicker we can look at it as a disease, the quicker we can get rid of the stigma and devote resources to fix it. Thanks again to Ivan Mazel for sharing the most difficult lessons anyone could ever learn in life.